Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So we're reading Confident Ruby by Avdi Grimm. Today we're going to discuss sections 4.19, 4.20, and 4.21, which cover substituting a benign value for nil, using symbols as placeholder objects, and bundling arguments into parameter objects. And remember to follow us on Twitter at RubyBookClub and check out rubybookclub.com to follow along. So Saron, what did you make of the reading this week? I felt like these three sections we're about to go through were probably the easiest and most enjoyable sections so far. And I've been thinking a lot about why that might be. And I think it's because the three sections we're about to get into are familiar territory. They're they're comfortable. They're categories we've talked about before. We're just talking about it in a slightly different way. So it felt a lot just easier to digest. What do you think? Yeah, I think I agree with you. The third one, there was a bit more digging into because there were some Mm -hmm. patterns that were referenced that I needed to look up. But apart Mm -hmm. from that, definitely the first two, I went through them very quickly. I think in around 10 minutes on each one. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. So shall we dig into 4.19? Let's do it. So 4.19 is about substituting a benign value for nil. And when I read this, I said, okay, great, familiar territory, because we've been talking about nil a lot, right? We've been talking about what happens when we get the no method error and we get it because of nil and what happens when we can't trust user input and we don't get everything that we want. And this feels like another category or another section in that category. So here we're talking about using something that is well-known and is a very good agreeable value whenever you're missing a parameter yes and so the point of this is that you you want to eliminate tedious checks for the presence of optional information so you don't want to have to keep checking do i have this thing do i have that thing and so you just substitute it for a safe value that you know is going to be kind in your code base kind in your code base i love that so in this example we are talking about a social network called Bookface, which I thought was was great, Bookface <laughs> Network. And in this Bookface Network, or in this Bookface model, model, is it a model? Bookface app, there we go. Yeah. We have a method called render member. And so we want to show these member-related things, which I think a lot of us have to do in our various applications. And one of the things that we need to show is the location. And when we do that, we use something called the geolocatron First of all, is that a is that a known word or is Avdi being funny? I wasn't sure. I didn't search it. I just thought okay. he might have been making it up. I, I hope so because I was like, oh, that's really cool. Wait, is that a thing? Should I know what that is? Is that a Ruby thing? Um, but yes, I think he just made that up. I think he's having fun. And, and that class calls a locate method and takes in the member address. So what's the problem here? So the problem here is that sometimes we may get nil for a location object. That could be because the member doesn't have an address or the geolocatron geolocatron (laughs) service (laughs) is down. And so we have no way of dealing with that in a nice way. The The app would just crash. Yeah, and it specifically says that it's not 100% reliable. And that's one thing that I really love about these examples is it keeps bringing it back to confidence and trust and very 
relationshipy terminology. <laughs> and in this case, we just can't rely on that address always being there. So there's a couple ways that we talk about possibly solving for this. And we've referenced these examples before. One of them is the begin rescue end block. And when we talk about the begin rescue block, it talks about how this works. It's fine. Um, but it draws attention to something that ultimately isn't that important. Yes, and it's this idea of using things like a begin, rescue, end block puts that location part of the method in the spotlight. And so the second the second way that Avdi suggests is that we could also use an if block and say if location, if block. We could also use a conditional <laughs> and yeah. say and say if location, then print the print the map. Otherwise, don't do it. And so with both the begin block and the conditional the location thing suddenly has a lot of prominence in this method and it's got the focus, but really that's not what the point of the method is. The point of the method is just to display all of the information about a member. Yes, and what's really important here is that the location information is nice to have, but it's not necessary. Because there were sections in the past where we said explicitly, no, we want to call it out. We want it to take the spotlight because it's very important. If it doesn't work, everything needs to stop. But this is not one of those situations. And so knowing that this is secondary, nice to have information, we don't have to be so loud about it. And he actually calls it squeaky wheel code, which I'd never heard of before. Have you heard of that? <laughs> I love that so much, right? The the loud, really annoying wheel uh, gets gets the the code oil. I'm not sure how that works, um, but you know, Matt. gets the intention. <laughs> gets the intention, and in this case, we don't necessarily need it to be that loud. Right, and so what we can do is, what is a safe default or a safe backup location that we can use? And in this case, Avdi says that. Since we're dealing with local meetups, that's the reason why we're printing these member reports. We're trying to group them together. We're trying to group members together for local meetups. We can just default the location to the general metropolitan area in which the, the, the relevant group is, is defined in. So, and, and, and also, he also says that what we should do is we should move the location finding code up to the top of the method to get it out of the way so it doesn't disrupt the sort of flow of the rest of the method, which is all about appending text to an HTML string in order to print out the member report. Yes, and I'm so glad you brought up the, lo <laughs> the location of the location um, <laughs> because where it's put physically in our method is also a form of communication. So pulling it out at the top, getting it out of the way so we have this nice flow that doesn't isn't worried about whether or not there's a location, just communicates another really important thing to the developer and makes it easy to, uh, to read and to use. So really glad that you pointed that out. So that location value that we established up top, that's what we're talking about when we talk about a benign value, which is a known good object that stands in for a missing input. Right, and then Avdi says, maybe you're thinking that this is similar to the null object pattern. I think this is something we discussed last week, Soran. Mm -hmm. Right, and so that's where you create an object that represents nil, like do nothing behaviors. So it returns zeros, empty strings, nil. And this one is all about adding a more default sort of behavior. And so Avdi says, you may think they're similar, but they are a bit different. And that is because with the benign value, you're trying to give something that's semantically meaningful, meaningful 
to the case in question. So with this one, we were talking about a local meetup. Therefore, it's safe to give the default, the, the general metropolitan area rather than, you don't want a nil in that case. That's unhelpful. Um, and whereas with for the null object pattern, it's where you don't want anything to be done and you don't want to give, you don't want to transmit any form of behavior. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up because as I was reading this section, I thought to myself, this feels like null object. And last week when we were talking about null object, I think I said to you on the show that my understanding of null was what is the stand-in for nil? Mm -hmm. And really the null object is about having an object whose job is to do nothing, which is different. And this section came along at such a great time because it reinforced that distinction to me. And it was a good reminder of null object's job is to do nothing. And in this example, the benign value's job is to actually add value and bring value and bring meaning. So really glad you pointed that out. Yeah, and so that's the end of that example. And the, the general message that Agni wants us to go away with is that when we've got a case where data isn't vital to, to whatever we're working on, then it's fine to just put in a good placeholder and move on and not spend time constructing a special case code and to, to reference every time we've got missing information. Yes, definitely. So shall we move on to 4.20? We should. So 4.20 is about using symbols as placeholder objects. And so in this example, we're still talking about this idea of nil, and we're talking about a situation where nil is not very helpful, and we'll go into why it's not very helpful. And so instead, we want to use a symbol as a placeholder value. And so let's dig into the example, because I wasn't, this was one of the chapters where reading the title of it, I wasn't sure what he was talking about. You didn't know what was going to happen, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> So, so let's just dig into the example. So the example is about optionally authenticating with a web service. So we've got a web service and we're contacting it in order to get a list of widgets. And the point is, if you're requesting 20 results or less, no, it should be 20 results or fewer, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, 20 results <laughs> or fewer at a time, then you don't need to be authenticated. So you don't need to log in or have a username or password. However, if you want to get more than 20 widgets, then you need to give a username or password. And so we're presented with a method called list widgets. And inside this method, we first of all get, it takes an options hash and we get the credentials by looking for the credentials key. We get the page size by fetching the page size key. And if there's no page size, it defaults to 20. And we also get the starting page and that defaults to one if that's not supplied. And then there's a check which says, if you are asking for more than 20 pages, then fetch from the credentials, fetch the username and password. And then it does, it, it constructs the relevant query. Yes. And so the idea is that it only constructs the authenticated URL if you're doing if you're looking for page sizes greater than 20. And what I loved about this example is when you were talking about the options.fetch for the page size and the page, that's a tool that we talked about previously, right? Instead of doing the options and asking directly for the key, using .fetch helps us because it gives us better error messages. So I liked seeing that lesson that we took, was it from last episode, maybe a few episodes ago, and it's reappearing. So that was that was nice to see. And that I remembered it. That's Yay! also nice. <laughs> right, and so... 
uh, Avdi then call, tries calling this method in a couple of different ways. So first of all, he calls it with no arguments and you just get a simple query which contacts the web service, starts from page one and asks for 20 widgets. Then Avdi tries to call it with uh, a page size of 50 and he passes in some credentials and that makes up a, a query as well with his username, password and a request for 50 widgets. But then he asks for 50 widgets but does not pass any credentials and <gasps> what happens? Uh-oh. It gets very, very angry. And it, this is so great because the way that Avdi walks us through this example, you know, he does the first one. I go, yeah, that looks awesome. Everything's great. And then he does the second one. Yeah, this is amazing. <laughs> Best code ever. And then by the third one, it's like, oh, that's not good. Uh, and the way he describes it specifically is that there is a deep sinking feeling in the hearts of all Ruby programmers <laughs> because we get the no method error specifically for null class which is terrible. And it's funny because I get that deep sinking feeling in my heart all the time when I see that. And I've never really articulated why. And here he puts it so explicitly. He says, why is there so much angst over this exception? Because now we have to figure out where the nil comes from. And I remember recently in the Code Newbie code base, we had this issue where there was nil and I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, where in the, how in the world am I going to find where this thing came from? And it was such a nightmare. And so one, it's nice knowing that I'm not alone <laughs> and that everyone else has that feeling. And two, in this example, anyway, there's a way that we can solve for that. Indeed. And I just want to say, again, going back to the storytelling, Avdi is telling a story within these code sections. I mean, he he builds up the suspense. You're like, hmm, this is too good to be true. Something's going to come <laughs> up that's not going to be so good. And then he makes you relate as a reader to what's going on as well. And so that grabs, grasps you even more because now you're curious to say, ah, what is going to be the solution to all of my problems? Yes. And so this next section, I just love the title of it. It's called The Trouble with Nil. And I just feel like that would be a great movie or a book <laughs> or something. I swear, if we ever do like a Ruby production, it's going to be called The Trouble with Nil. It'll and be a musical. It'll be a musical. Yes, I can sing sort of. Um, and so The Trouble with Nil that it talks about is the fact that you can get Nil so many different ways for so many different reasons. It talks about how when there's a hash and the case not found, you get Nil. Um, when there is an empty method, that returns nil just by default. If there's a conditional, but the else is not accounted for, it returns nil. If you have a, um, a local variable and it, you know, it, it isn't set to anything because the conditional isn't hit, you get nil. So there's all these different reasons and all these different situations where you can get nil, which makes it so, so hard to trace back. And so the point of what we're about to do is to make sure that if we get a nil value, we get some, or if we get an error, we get some information, some more detail on what went wrong and where we should check so we can save our time and not spend it digging around for nil things. Yeah, and you mentioned this idea of saving time. One thing that Avdi touches on after he goes through all of these different ways of how nil can can be found in your code is that he says, so I've given you around 10 ways. That's not even it. There are more. And on top of that, nil often propagates through your code base. So it could start at the beginning mm. and it would just seep through and seep through. So that visually you can't tell just by looking at code where your nil has arisen from. You can't tell. It could have started on line one and it gets and it's only on line 20 where it, where it blows up. 
Yes, and he illustrates us. He gives us a little code sample and a method, and he calls a method. We get nil, and he says, where did this come from? We don't know. Here are the five or the four different places where it could have been just by looking at this method alone. So, yeah, it's not very easy. So any help that we can give ourselves and future developers in our code base to help nail that down is very helpful. And this is where the symbolic placeholders come into play. And so we go back to our list widgets method, but this time we changed the line where we fetch credentials. So before we just fetched, we just said options.fetch credentials and that was it. But now we're passing in a default value for the credentials option. And this is a block. So the block, like what we were discussing before. And what happens is we, we set a symbol called credentials not set. And so this means now, if we were to run that uh, method call again, the one where Avdi asks for 50 widgets, but does not supply credentials, this time when it blows up, it says undefined method fetch for credentials not set symbol. So now it's still a no method error, but this time we have a hint. It says, huh, credentials not set. Aha, perhaps I did not set the credentials. And then Avdi says, but let's say you see that error message and you're you're still not quite sure what, what to do about that, that failure. Well, at least you've got something that you can then search for within your code and that should help uh, enlighten you as to what the problem is. It's so brilliant because it's basically giving yourself an error message without sending an error message because the credentials not set is the problem, but it's a symbol and it looks really neat and clean and just fits in with the storyline of the code when you're looking at it visually mm -hmm. because it's just passed in as a default value, but it's actually incredibly semantic and really helpful. Yeah, and so, you know, Avdi says at the end of this chapter that we've now we've given a way for this method to communicate more clearly with the coder and it's just such a small change but it has huge implications mm -hmm. and it will save you a lot of time and anything that saves me time is definitely worth doing so really excited <laughs> about what we learned in that section so now let's do 4.21 let's do it so this one is called bundle arguments into parameter objects and so this is i think a, a very common issue that we might run into. And I think the first time I really heard about it was in Pooter, Sandy Metz's book. And it talks about having methods that take the same list of parameters. And to me, the thing that really stood out is the list of parameters. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk a lot about how we generally, is it no more than four, right? Is that the, the number? Even four, I think, is pushing it? I think that's, that's, that's Sandy's rule, yeah. That's Sandy's rule, right? Yeah. And so anytime I see myself putting in a lot of parameters, I I feel very icky about it. And Avdi gives us a nice solution of how to deal with that problem. Right. So he goes back to an example case that we've been looking at previously in the book to do with having a map and wanting to plot uh, points on them. So X, Y coordinates. And he draws out some methods that you might have in such a case. So we've got draw point and draw line. And in each of these, we pass in pairs of x and y coordinates so draw point has two arguments an x and a y draw line has four arguments one x and y set and another x y set uh -oh. mm -hmm. and so it's looking very verbose 
And Avdi says, well, look, X and Y coordinates are always appearing together. So we should just make a class. And here we have our lovely structure class again, where he defines a point class and it's, he just sets that equal to struct new with an X parameter and a Y parameter. And then he rewrites the example methods that he's shown us just before. So draw point now just takes a point. Draw line takes two arguments, point one and point two. And he also has introduced a class called map store to explore how we might save these points in a database. And so he's got one method called write point, which takes a point argument. And inside that, you serialize the point into a hash. And you do that by saying point hash equals x as a key, which is equal to point dot x, and y as a key, which is equal to point dot y. And when I read this idea about serializing a point, I thought I knew what that meant, but I had to do a bit of extra research in it. Do, do you know? Nadia sidebar. Yes. I just feel it coming. I feel it coming. Yes, let's do it. So if anyone is like, what does someone mean by serializing data or serializing point? I've got some information for you. So, <laughs> so serializing data. So in computer science, when we talk about serialization, it simply just means that we translate the data into a state that can be stored. So... This could be in a file or a memory buffer or in a, in a state that it can be transmitted across a network connection. And the point is that you can reconstruct it easier. Uh, you can reconstruct it later in either the same or another computer environment. And, and the idea is that, that when you reconstruct the object from the bytes or the bits that are stored, then you can make basically an identical clone or a semantically identical clone of that original object. So it stores the same meaning. And then I was on Wikipedia and it had this sentence which stuck out to me, which said, serialization of object-oriented objects does not include any of their associated methods with which they were previously inextricably linked. So that stuck out to me because obviously we're always talking about object-oriented programming. And I guess what that's saying is, so you have an object which means the same thing and has the same properties, but you don't have any of the information about the methods or the behaviors that it had. Mm -hmm. So serializing data. Awesome. Thank you for that, Nadia. That was great. So when we talk about the fact that we are moving away from having an X and a Y separately and using that struct, we're talking about parameter objects. And that I'm so glad that there's a name to that because I've found myself doing that recently where I'll look at a group of parameters and go, man, those really belong together. Ah, I think <laughs> I'll make a struct. A struct feels right here. Uh, and it was nice to know that there's, there's a name. That's a, that's a thing. That's a known thing. So it's called a parameter object. And one thing that Avdi says that I, again, I saw happening in my code and really glad it's a thing is that parameter objects have a way of becoming method magnets, which basically means that once you collect these different parameters and put it into a single object, it will then feel natural to say, you know, this object should really know how to do this thing. And it really should understand this other concept. So it becomes a natural home for other things that might have previously been scattered around in a bunch of other places. So that example that you gave previously about map store and that ability to, you know, to serialize it, that is a concept that might just feel better and kind of feel more logical if we put that in our struct, in our object. So we'd have a method called toHash so that the point knows how to serialize itself. 
Yes, and Avdi points out that from Ruby 2 onwards, you don't even need to define a two-hash method. It's already built into struct-based classes. Nice. Then Avdi says, you might want to use something called a double dispatch pattern to enable the point to draw itself. Ooh. So he's got the point class, which has a method defined in it called draw on, which takes a map. And in the map class, he's got this method called draw point, which takes a point. And inside the method, the method body, it says point dot draw on self. So I'd never heard of double dispatch pattern before. And so I wanted to do a bit more research. Had you heard of it? <gasps> Wait, do we get a double Nadia sidebar? Maybe. Oh my goodness. So... You know how often Wikipedia can be super, super helpful. And Mm -hmm. I mean, most of my sidebars have come from Wikipedia and then Googling around beyond that. Yes. You also know how when you go to Wikipedia and you read the first paragraph and then you go, what? (laughs) Yes. Okay, let me read you the first paragraph of the double dispatch pattern in Wikipedia and see if you can make sense of this. Let's do it. In software engineering, double dispatch is a special form of multiple dispatch and a mechanism that dispatches a function call to different concrete functions depending on the runtime types of two objects involved in the call. In most object-oriented systems, the concrete function that is called from a function call in the code depends on the dynamic type of a single object and therefore they are known as single dispatch calls or simply virtual function calls. Great, so we know what double dispatch is now. Nope, that was your brush. Yeah, and so I had to do more research because Wikipedia failed me today. And so I ended up digging around and I found a, I found something on Stack Overflow. And essentially, single dispatch, this is, this is what I've gathered. And again, anyone feel free to message in and clarify things. But single dispatch is where it's a, me- a method is dispatched. I guess that also means sent based on the runtime type of a single object. So for Ruby, this is the dot operator, that single dispatch. So um, in this case, it would be point dot draw on. That's that is a single dispatch. Mm -hmm. And then so in the Stack Overflow answer that I found, which I'm going to put in the show notes, the person then goes on to say that double dispatch is based on the runtime of two, two, two objects. But how do you... But how do you represent this in, in dynamic languages? Because it's not built in like it is in languages like Java. And so it's it seems that in Ruby, double dispatch is where you do a single dispatch twice in a row and the first method call calls a method on the second object. And this makes sense, right? Because we call draw point on point mm-hmm. and that calls draw on on the point object. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense mm-hmm. if that is indeed what double dispatch is. It's essentially a way that you pass in one object and then a method is called on that object that you've passed in. So what is the point of doing that? So I guess it's just a way of um, getting, it's a way of constructing, putting your objects together and, and stringing together their behavior to get extra functionality. So in this case, you can say to uh, a map, draw a line, and it's actually the points that are doing the behavior of drawing themselves on a map. And then... <laughs> Sorry, just just silence. I was like, hmm, let me try that again. Okay, so what's the point? <laughs> I think the point is that you can just combine the behaviors of different objects to get more complex functionality. So in the case of the example that Avdi's shown, we want to draw lines on a map. And you could have this mm-hmm. map where it's like, you have to, I don't know, 
come up with complex ways that you're going to draw different things on. But really, the behavior for drawing a point is within the point class. A point has the ability to draw itself on a map. So when you're coming to the map and you're like, hey, I want to draw lines, you can leverage the behavior of points to be able to draw themselves in order to get to drawing lines in your within your map class. So in the map class, where is the double dispatch happening? So it's happening in the draw line, draw point and draw line methods. So in draw point, you say to the map, you go map dot draw point and you pass in a point. And the double, so that's single dispatch. The double dispatch point is where inside the method body, it says point dot draw on self. So it's using the argument and extracting, um, leveraging the behavior of the point to draw, to, to ha- that it has the ability to draw on, on the map. It can draw itself. So if we didn't do it this way, what would be the other way that we did it? Oh, uh, I mean, I don't... I'm trying to like, see the difference. I'm not sure about the other way we do it in the sense that what Avdi's trying to say is that, um, so you might have the, you might put whatever's in draw on in the point class, you mm. might put that behavior inside the map class. And so when you say draw point point, uh. and it might be that that's when you start getting into, ooh, is this a responsibility of the map? to be able to draw these points or should a point be able to draw itself on a map so it's all about how you do the divisions and i think what double dispatch means is that you can separate out different responsibilities but still combine behaviors so that you know certain objects are behaving in a way that makes sense but yet you can get complex functionality out of them by by using things like double dispatch Mm, okay i understand and the other thing is the draw on is used both in the draw point method for map and the draw line as well so it seems like the point knows how to draw itself in different contexts within the map too which makes your code drier yes i think the point that he's trying to say is look within a point it knows how to draw itself and look within a map look at all the different ways it's helpful not only can you draw a point you can draw lines you can go crazy (laughs) got it okay that makes sense thank you for that that was really helpful yeah that was good and and again if anyone is listening and thinks we've got this completely wrong please let us know please say something (laughs) hear something say something indeed so this refactoring helps out for a couple different reasons. One, it reduces the size of the parameter list, which is one of the first things that we talked about. Uh, and that's really nice because it means that things are much more readable and just easier to digest. Two, it's a lot more semantic, right? Having an X comma Y is not as helpful as just having something called point. And point is really the idea that we care about the most. So it, so it makes more sense just to explicitly call it a point. And two, when we talk about, because we've, we've talked a bunch about having potential nil values and what happens when we don't get exactly the input that we're looking for. And so if we have a place where all the point stuff lives, then we can add things like validations and make sure that we get the X and the Y and not, for example, one over the other. And then fourth, which kind of goes along with the third point, is that you have a home, not just for the attributes and for you know, the parameters themselves, but for any behavior related to it as well. So for lots of really good reasons, doing this type of refactor and using parameter objects is very helpful. Yeah, that's great. 
Okay, and so then Avdi introduces some further features that we might need for our map application. And he does this in order to illustrate another way in which having the parameter objects are going to be helpful to us. So he says we've got two types of points now on the map. We've got, well, we've got plain old normal points. We've got starred points. So this is a particularly notable location on the map. And we've also got fuzzy points. So this is where we're not quite sure where this point is. And so there's going to be a, a radius around it on the map to say this point could be anywhere within this, this circle here. Yes. And so immediately when he brought out these two examples, which complicates our initial example a little bit, I thought, oh, crap. I feel like that, <laughs> that's always my reaction when Avdi does that, when he'll start with something simple and straightforward and then go into, but what happens if you do this? I immediately think, oh, crap. There's no way we're going to figure this out. I have no idea what's going to happen next. Um, but he he specifically says, you know, when you have these different situations that you now have to accommodate, things can get a little bit messy. So in our methods, for example, the draw point method, if we pass in a starred, we, a starred point, we now have to accommodate that and we have to say okay is this start if it's star do this thing however if it's not do this other thing but if it's fuzzy then do this other thing so we can see a situation where we are getting really caught up in all these conditionals and all these different situations and he specifically calls it a nest of conditionals which i'm gonna go on a limb and say that all of us have experienced a nest of conditionals at some point in our coding lives and that is not a great place to be and his solution to this is the step that I I feel like I don't see as quickly as I would like to. And he says that it's a small mental step to see that a starred point is really a specialization of a point. So his solution for handling these conditionals is to have starred point inherit from point and basically, you know, use a, a lot of the same stuff when there needs to be a method that's overwritten, then he writes it. And what he does is there's the to hash method, which if you remember, we also had in our point class and he calls super and then he merges the starred true value. So by having the starred point, it's basically the same stuff as point. The only difference is now it has this key, which is starred and that starred key is true. So that's, you know, kind of the, the big difference there. And to me, this was so insightful and I'm really excited to find a place to use this because I feel like I, I have... I, I run into that problem often where there's conditionals and I go, crap, I have no idea how to handle this. And this is a really good tool in my tool set. Yeah, so that's the inheritance version where you say, oh, a start point is, is a specialization of point. And this is something that Sandy Metz talks about a lot where she says, inheritance, people think it's bad, it's really bad. But if you're using it properly and using it as a specialization, then that's when you should definitely use it. So that's so that's that case. And then he says, but fuzzy point, that might be a decorator. And so again, I had to go away and just do a little check on what a decorator was. I'd heard of the decorator pattern, but I wanted to get a good, a good um, succinct definition of it. And I found a blog post. It's a bit old. It's from 2011 from ThoughtBot, which I'll put in the show notes again. And essentially, a decorator just means that you can add, replace, or extend an object's behavior based on its characteristics. And it says that it's an object that wraps another object by adding required functionality. And I just thought, of, I, think, I don't know if it was last week or a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about the difference between an adapter object and, 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 a wrap, and wrapping. And mm -hmm. we, we said that, oh, wrapping is where you can wrap functionality within a method. But 
you can also wrap objects within objects and that's essentially when you pass an object as an argument to another object as we'll see in this example here with fuzzy point Mm -hmm. and so for fuzzy point avdi defines the fuzzy point class and then it inherits from simple delegator which i think we've seen a a couple of times before and so inside the initializing method for the fuzzy point you pass in a point which is an instance of a point class and you pass in the, the the value of the fuzzy radius and then you call super with the point so therefore you're calling out to the points initialized method the point class initialized method and then you set the instance variable fuzzy radius to the fuzzy radius that you passed in and so now what's happening here is that you know Avdi says now that we had this idea of a point class and a start point and a fuzzy point you can do things like draw a fuzzy start point and it's really straightforward what you do is you say fuzzy point dot new the first argument is a start point dot new with the coordinates and then you pass in the fuzzy radius and boom you've got a start fuzzy point whereas when we didn't have this idea of a point parameter object it was looking very unwieldy and very messy passing a lot of options around and also having to do a lot of conditionals I don't know if I would have ever thought of that without just having someone say, this is what you do. I I agree with you. Often I don't spot these ways to refactor and tidy up my code. And this is, again, why I'm really lucky working with Theo, where he's always there to sort of point things like this out. And this is why sort of reading the stuff and discussing it and hopefully you get to the point where you do start to spot this sort of stuff. I'm waiting for that day when I'm looking at some <laughs> code and I spot something like this and I'm and I'm also confident that it's the right thing to do as well. And yes. I'm like, yes, wow, I mm-hmm. got there by myself and I'm, I'm waiting for that. I'm very excited to look at something and go, this is obviously a fuzzy pointy star, <laughs> obviously. Yes. Obviously. That would be amazing that would be definitely an accomplishment so what is interesting about this is that i'm trying to i'm trying to go through and figure out how i would think this through on my own and so what's interesting is with the fuzzy point start point i think the first step for me looking at this would be which comes first the fuzzy point or the start point and based on the way we're making the fuzzy start point the start point is created first and then it's passed into the fuzzy point. So when you're looking at this, I'm curious, how would you decide which one is a specialization and which one is the, is it the decorator? Is that what we called it? Yeah. Yeah. And which one is the decorator? So I think the reason why start point is the specialization is because its behavior is exactly the same. The only thing is it's represented differently. So it's it's a star as opposed to a point so therefore it's it's just a specialization on the normal point behavior behaves exactly the same whereas fuzzy point it adds extra functionality in that it it has this extra thing which is a circle now i realize that with a specialization you can have extra functionality too and i think that something that we have to keep in mind when we're reading this book is that Avdi is putting out there a way that he would approach things. And it's not necessarily the way, the only way, somewhat the best way. 
it's it's a way that he's thought about that he thinks that he would recommend. But there are people who may read this and say, I would do it this way or I would do it that way. And so I think what Avdi is trying to do here as well is is show us as many things as possible without being confusing or overwhelming on here is how you might approach this thing. And so, and also it was, it enabled him by bringing in the decorator and the, and the specialization, the inheritance, it enabled him to then show us how you can combine that really powerfully at the end. And so I wouldn't worry too much about when to do inheritance and when to do decorator. I think it's more about trying to just get a sense, you know, like you always say of the of the tool set and the things at our disposal. And I think keeping in mind this idea that, okay, we've got decorators that can extend, modify a base object's behavior. And then we've also got inheritance for when we've got those specializations when the behavior is pretty much the same but we've got a little tweak to make or a little little bit of customization and having those in, in mind and then playing around with those things um i think we, we should be on pretty pretty good good terms i hope so i'd like to be on good terms but i i really <laughs> like the uh, the distinction that you made though because you said that the start is it's still a point it's just a more specific point and the fuzzy radius has a point and has another extra thing. So I think when I'm trying to decide what to do and when to use things, I think I'm going to ask myself the question to get me started that says, okay, is this a more specific thing or am I adding another thing to the thing I already had? I think that'll help me at least figure out what options I have to then decide what I want to do with it. Yeah. And so that, you know, that's the end of the parameter object section. and by taking it that one level up and and changing that list of parameters into an object, it means that we can start to not only simplify our method signatures, but also do cleverer refactorings like we saw in the the inheritance and the the decorator pattern because we've got these idea of these these concepts in our code that are encompassed within those, those objects. So I'm just really glad to have another way to destroy all the conditionals that I have and make <laughs> my code cleaner and more confident. So really, really excited about the parameter object. And like I said in the beginning, it's something that I've I've been doing and I've seen myself do. But this with the inheritance and the decorator really takes it to a whole other level. So really excited to use it. Awesome. I think we can wrap up now. All right. So we want to know, have you heard of the parameter object before reading this section or listening to this episode? If so, where did you first hear about it? And have you been using it without realizing that you're using it? Record your 30-second response and send it to us at hello at rubybookclub.com, and you just might hear yourself on the show. Don't forget to tweet us at rubybookclub and tell us about how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. See ya. See ya.